It is so good to be with you guys this morning. I get to call as my job when I get paid to do. I get to spend an absurd amount of time around college students, and I get to see all that God is doing at Southwestern and in, and in their lives and through them at that campus and, and in our community. And it, what a privilege it is to get to come alongside them and watch them step up to lead, to give their lives away. This is the next generation of business leaders, of moms, dads, raising, raising children, raising even the generation after them. And so I just hope that you understand the significance of what it means to, to allow college students to step up and learn, lead and learn to lead um, on Sunday mornings. Um, so my name's Scott, if you haven't met me. Uh, I normally serve in, on the AV team in the back, um, but because of what I, uh, what I do and how much time I spend with college students, I get the opportunity to, to speak on College Sunday. So if you spend any amount of time with me, we will inevitably begin talking about adventure. It's just something that is in my DNA. It's a part of who I am, that we will talk about past adventures, dream or road trips, just exciting opportunities to get up and go, to explore, do something we've never done before. It's just, it's just a topic of conversation that I'm on a lot. Um, and I think, I think I saw this, and we saw this um, when, I was a, when I was a young child. Are there any parents here? Um, now, did any of you have kids that were climbers? Anybody that would, had kids that would just climb out of the high chair or climb out of their crib? That was me. I was, I was that youngster that I, it didn't matter what it was. If I could climb it, I was, I was going up. So the brick, the brick chimney in our house, I was climbing it. The cottonwood trees in our backyard, I was going as high as I could, far above our house. Any, any uh, rest stop on the side of the highway, any cliff alongside the highway, big boulders, I was climbing as high as I could before my parents could stop me. And moms, you may, you may do this where you have a little nervous fit when your child climbs where my mom would stomp her feet and get down here. Um, and I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure what would, what would cause uh, somebody to just, to just go. But I do know that I wanted to get where I'd never been before. And so I'd, I'd get to the top of this tree and... And I climb as high as I could and, and feel the wind swaying me in the breeze. A little sketchy, I know, but I, I enjoyed it. And I'd enjoy the view, admire how high I had climbed, how upset I'd made my mom. And then I'd realize, okay, well, it's time to come down. And, um, well, how did I get up here? I'd be stuck. I wouldn't remember what steps I'd taken, what branch I'd stepped on. So it looks kind of like this, a bunch of cats in a tree that I would not know how to get out of the position I put myself into. So if we're honest, I think we get to these moments in our lives regularly where we, where we say to ourselves, how did I get here? We feel stuck. We've drifted off from our intended destination and we end up saying, how did I get here? So whether that's, that's in our marriages whether that's in our relationships with our friends, with our job, with our mortgages or our finances, or school. Maybe a professor or a teacher is just piling things on. 
you're way behind. How did I get here moments are regular rhythms of our lives. And so today I'd like to look at Hebrews, a book of the Bible written to a group of people who were stuck, who were saying to themselves, how did I get here? They had drifted from where they intended to be, and now the author of Hebrews wants to help them get unstuck, to get back to what they were created for, what their life was meant for. So we're going to go to Hebrews 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So let's, let's stop there and explain and think about what he's saying. There's a lot here uh, that I think we need to understand, but that if we can grasp it, if we can grab onto it and, and comprehend it, I think it has significant implications in our lives. Um, so first he says, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, and the sanctuary, this word can be translated the most holy place, the holy of holies. Uh, and so way back in Old Testament times, there was first a tabernacle and then there was a temple, Solomon's temple, that looked a lot like this, this, this grand building. And God had outlined details of how to build it, what materials to use, what colors to use it, to the, to, to the smallest, most minute details, so that it would be perfect. And inside of this large temple, was, was the Holy of Holies, uh, the place where God's presence dwelt. Um, so can we go to the, to the diagram of what it looked like inside? Um, so you see, from the entrance, you'd move across. Eventually, uh, we'd get to the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies. Uh, and um, so between this little line, between the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the outer court, and then eventually the rest of, of, of the world, there's a four-foot-thick curtain separating us from the presence of God. Now, why is, that, why is that curtain there? Why is it necessary? And why would God have them put this massive curtain to keep us from him? Isn't, aren't we created for a relationship with God? Doesn't, doesn't he love us and desire to know us? Yes, yes, he does. But this curtain is, is a physical, visual representation of a deeper inward reality. You see, way back in the beginning, when God created us for intimate relationship with him, we said thanks, but no thanks, and we turned and went our own way. We became stuck. Life got boring because we were separated from the creator of life. We became anxious and started to live with a pit in our hearts. Because we had lived, we started trying to live life and find life away from the source of peace. And so this curtain in our hearts went up that separated us from God and relationship with God. But God, desiring relationship with us, set up a system for him to interact with his people. And so he appointed a high priest. And uh, we can go back to that diagram, please. He appointed a high priest who once a year his job was to enter in to the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the, for the sins of the nation so that, so that people could, so their sins could be covered 
for that year. And so he went through this whole like interesting, fascinating process. At first, at the altar of sacrifice, he would sacrifice a bull for his own sins. He'd have to recognize and deal with his own sin before he could help anybody else. Then he'd move on to the bronze basin where he'd wash his hands, his feet, and put on new clothes symbolizing an out, it was an outward representation of, of the forgiveness that had happened from his, his sacrifice. Then he'd go into the holy place and he'd go up to the altar of incense and would light incense so the, whole, so the whole room would be filled with smoke so that when he finally did enter into the Holy of Holies, he'd be protected from God's, God's glory. And then he'd go in and he'd make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And when the high priest would enter into the presence of God, he entered with fear and reverence because of the seriousness and the magnitude of our sin. And this was a yearly thing that we continually had to do this because the sacrifice of a bull or a goat was not enough. But God, in his mercy and out of his love for us, decided that he had to do something about this separation between us and him. So he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect, innocent, blameless life without a curtain between him and his father so that he could be a perfect, innocent, blameless sacrifice and absorb the debt of our sin, to absorb the wages of, of what uh, resulted from separation from God. And so he gives himself up to die on a cross so that we could have forgiveness, so that we can have relationship with God. And as he breathes his last, he, he proclaims, Tetelestai, which is often translated, it is finished. but can also be translated, all debts paid. Paid in full. And Matthew 27 says this about the death of Jesus. That Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai. It is finished. And suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary, sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. That as soon as Jesus gave up his last breath, that curtain was torn open. The earth shook. Creation was rocked to its very core. This was the magnitude and the sufficiency and the completeness of Jesus' death. That God had accepted his payment. And that when we put our faith in Jesus, we can have relationship with God, the relationship we were designed for. And that through faith in Jesus, we can have access to a new life. And so Jesus' blood and his body removes our sin and, and gives us access to new life, a new way of living that he talks about in verse 21. And he's this high priest that stands between us and God inviting us into relationship, inviting us into a new way of life. And so I'd like to take a moment and give you the opportunity, if you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for relationship with God, or maybe, maybe you feel like you've just drifted off from this and you have lost sight of your faith, I'd like to give you the opportunity to, again, put your trust in Jesus, that it's that simple, that that by grace through faith we are saved. So I'll, I'll pray, if you'll pray with me. 
Father, thank you that you are relentless in your pursuit of us, that you would send your own son to be the sacrifice that we needed for forgiveness, for relationship with you. May we look upon the cross and have faith in the death of resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think what happens a lot of times in life is, is we meet somebody, we have this introduction, uh, and we get to this moment of, well, now what? And I, I call these awkward moments, a lot of awkward moments in my life. Many times I just feel like my life is one extended awkward moment. Uh, and so may, I don't know, maybe awkward moments are a regular thing for you. Maybe they're not. Maybe you're just gifted with people. But uh, I think a lot of times they look something like this. Hey, guys. Oh, big golfs, huh? All right. Well, see you later. Well, see you later. Uh, and that's, I think this is such a great representation of what happens to us in our relationship with God. That we put our faith in Jesus to save us, that by grace through faith we are saved, but then we kind of get to this moment, well, now what? What does, what does life look like? Yeah, Scott, I already trusted Jesus with my life. Why am I still getting stuck? Why am I still drifting off? Uh, it's because I think we forget about the gospel. And, and we drift from this central truth. And so the author of Hebrews will go on in the next few verses to, to really prescribe to us three ways to live in this new reality, this new way of living. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to take a look at those. First, we're going to start with uh, Hebrews 10.22. And he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. So the first thing the author of Hebrews would have us do is to draw near to God with a true heart, a sincere heart, with assurance, with boldness, with confidence. The confidence and the boldness that the high priest never had because we have a better high priest. Because Jesus stands between us and God and when God looks at us and we've put our trust in Jesus, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees Jesus' sacrifice. So we approach God confidently knowing that through Jesus we are accepted and approved by the God of the universe. So he says, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You can also translate it a guilty conscience. So often we think of approaching God and we look at our lives and we're full of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame from what we've done, from who we are. But Jesus' death and resurrection is about more than just forgiveness from what we've done. It's about deliverance from what we are. Um, And so he transforms our hearts at the deepest levels of who we are. And then it begins to demonstrate itself in our lives, that it begins to actually show up, that we actually begin to experience joy and peace and hope 
and things that maybe we didn't know or wouldn't know apart from Jesus. See, inward transformation results in outward change. What happens as we draw near to God is we, we learn to stand on what Jesus has done and not on our own works. It begins to show up in our lives that we continue to approach God and engage in this relationship. Now, the thing that helps me think through this um, is, is, is this. So you have your position and you have your condition. The moment we put our trust in Jesus, our position is changed before God. That is inalterable. That's a done deal. That's set in stone. That God approves of us. He accepts us because of what Jesus has done. So we learn to live with this position in mind, but we still have this condition of a sin nature. We still drift. We still get stuck. And so God, when we, when we draw near to him, begins to change our condition so that our condition becomes more and more like our position. That he changes us from the inside out. That by grace through faith, we are being saved. It is a continual process. So he goes on in verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So here's the challenge, the encouragement to hang on tightly to this hope that we've already talked about, the hope of the gospel, of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is what we, what we cannot depart from. See, oftentimes, I think when we get stuck, we, live, we start living with this pit in our chest, this, this need to control, and we're running and running and running after good things. Raising our kids, making more money so that we can give more. Good things. Investing in other people, but it's burdensome, and it's not life-giving. It's draining, and we're exhausted, and we're anxious. You see, what sometimes begins to happen is a, is a subtle thing is that we depart from the grace that we started with and we begin to try and, and perfect ourselves on our own. That we somehow make this subtle change in our lives where we try and earn God's approval. But it's given to us in Jesus and that's our hope is that we will always be approved of and accepted before God through Jesus, not by what we do. And so we need the gospel as much today as we ever did. So if you guys ever got excited about starting a new project and then didn't finish it, man, how many unfinished projects do you have around your house? We've got four or five in our garage and three more in our kitchen. Um, That's usually what happens when I'm cleaning the dishes is I see a dirty table and then I see a couch and then I see Netflix um, and well you know how that goes but we we start a project and we get excited about it it's new, it's fresh and so is our faith when we put our trust in Jesus or we have this kind of moment of oh yeah, that's that's what it is that I believe and it's fresh, it's new but this honeymoon phase only lasts for a short time. Think of marriage. Um, that 
It doesn't, doesn't, and then it gets hard. Faith gets hard. Following Jesus, living in a relationship with God becomes difficult. There are a million different distractions. There's tests every other week. There's games, football games, soccer games. You're an athlete. You might meet a girl, get married, have kids, have another kid, get a mortgage, buy a house, get a new job, have to move, not be able to find a new church or a new church family. And suddenly you're drifting off from where you started. Suddenly you're in a how did I get here moment. And then sometimes we just have tragedies in life that rock us. Um, How do we finish the race? How do we continue in our faith? And I I think what the author of Hebrews will give to us is it's very practical and deeply uh, impactful in our lives. Um, so let's start in verse 24. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good deeds, not staying away from worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when he says, let us be concerned, uh, other translations say, Con- consider, consider how to do this. The thoughtful, intentional thing that we practice, that we have to contemplate, that we have to think ahead about. Let us consider how to promote love and good works. You can also say how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. How do we spur one another on? How do we provoke, instigate each other towards love and good deeds? See, we're saved by grace through faith, and we're being saved by, by grace through faith. But, but love and good deeds, good works, they matter. Now you may ask, what role, what role do they have in our lives? Well, if, if you're bored in your faith, if you're apathetic towards God, if you feel unmotivated, it's probably because you haven't engaged and activated your faith. You haven't, you haven't gotten out of your comfort zone. You haven't done anything new. You haven't stretched yourself. You see, faith atrophies without action. And action fades without community. A helpful illustration for this is is sports. Faith, faith is like a muscle. And so I may not look the part now, but back in, an, on a, in another time of my life, I was a basketball player and actually had the opportunity to play basketball for Southwestern. Within the first two weeks of my freshman year, I tore, I tore tendon in my ankle. And the MRI showed that I would need to have season-ending surgery. So they told me that it would take five months being in a cast, on crutches, in a boot, in an air cast, before I could actually start the full rehab process. But as I began the rehab process, they said it would take nine months, not up to a year, for me to make it back to full speed. Which was tough, because even after seven months of intensive rehab, I was still slow, and I wasn't blazing fast before. And I couldn't jump, and I couldn't really jump before, and, and so I wasn't really much of a basketball player anymore. Um, 
because I hadn't used my muscles in so long. I hadn't used my leg. I hadn't used my core. I hadn't used anything to run, to jump, to cut. All I was useful for was shooting threes. Um, And that's what happens with our faith. Faith in relationship with God is really the only muscle that we use. And if we don't practice it, it it wastes. It wastes away. It weakens. And then we wonder why we're bored. Why it's hard to be motivated to do things. So, that's why it's so important to be in community. To challenge each other to get up. To go do something. Take small steps. So this is where we can get very practical. How do we challenge each other? How do we, how do we get up and serve how do we promote love and good works? See, I think a lot of times think, we think all right, getting, getting back on track means another Bible study, another thing to show up to and to receive. But depth happens on mission. The good stuff happens when we push each other to grow, to serve, to live on mission. That's where the good stuff is. When we move past superficial relationships, and go out together and, and serve. And so this begins, I think, by getting in a community group, surrounding yourself with a group of people who will check in with you, who will challenge you, who will ask you how you're doing loving your neighbors, how you, ask how you're doing loving your wife or serving your children or, or how you're doing with that, that boss that just takes you off all the time. They're going to challenge you and in, encourage you in that. Get into a community group who won't shy away from asking and calling you to more. Because then, you, then your faith can't be stagnant. One-on-one mentor-mentee relationships. Find an older man or woman who's in the next stage of life, who knows what it looks like to follow Jesus in retirement, who knows what it looks like to follow Jesus in marriage or with kids or a new job. They know what's coming. Look, look to somebody younger than you. Who can you bring up behind you and encourage them as they look to enter into the next season of their life? This is why College Sunday is so exciting. It's because there are a number of college students in this room who are growing in their faith, who are on fire and want to go out and change the world. And we have the opportunity during these four years, three years, two years, whatever they have left, to show them what it looks like to be a husband, a father, a businessman. As they go out and change the world, we get to be a part of that. And lastly is Sunday worship meetings, where we, where we gather together and remind each other of the truths of the gospel. Where we're, we're drawn back towards relationship with God. It's drift prevention. And these are, these are crucial to continuing in our faith. And I love the way the author of Hebrews ends this section. As he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. An increasing amount, an increasing abundance you encourage and meet together where your habits begin to change. You see, everything begins and is sustained by trusting in Jesus. 
We were saved by grace through faith. We are being saved by grace through faith. And we will be saved by grace through faith. The the day drawing near is referring to the day when Jesus returns. So as we draw near to God in the assurance of our faith, as we hold to the hope that God will finish the job in us that he started, and as we encourage each other towards love and good deeds, it, it increases and it grows. Now I'll never forget the day my roommate came stumbling into my house. I was sitting on my nice leather chair enjoying probably a good movie. Um, And he was distraught. See, he had just received a call from his dad. His younger brother had attempted suicide and was in a hospital in San Antonio. And so I, I drove my roommate the two hours to San Antonio and hung around just to see how I could be there for him not knowing what to do. And so after a few days, it became apparent that his brother wasn't going to make it. And they, they either could, could let him live on a machine or they could unhook him and he could be an organ donor and change lives. Um, so they decided to, to turn something good out of this tragedy. And this was the most imp- one of the most impactful moments of me Um, in my faith, where I got to see what it looks like to, in the midst of tragedy of the worst kind, to draw near to God with a true and sincere heart. What it means to hold to that hope that God who promised is faithful. What it means to love and encourage one another towards love and good deeds You see, there were about 30 of us in this room, all gathered um, to come alongside the family. And my roommate's father was insistent that they would not unhook his son until we sang these lyrics. Put those up there. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll and the Lord shall descend. It is well, it is well with my soul. What's so amazing about my roommate's father is that he was not a pastor. He was not a minister. He wasn't a monk. He was like you and he was like me. Just a guy doing his best to be a dad, to be a husband, to support his kids through college. See, there was nothing that we could pass off and say, oh, but he's special. No, he was like us. See, this faith is not for a select few, but it's for all of us. This relationship with God, this new way of living is accessible to us now through Jesus. 
You know, what would it look like for a community of people to daily remind each other, it is well, it is well, because of the sufficiency of Jesus' death, because of the implications of his resurrection? What would that look like for us to come together and live in that reality? So what we'll do now is we'll have a couple minutes to reflect. We call it take two. So maybe you heard something this morning that, that stirs you up, that reminds you. Maybe, maybe you've never heard this story of sin and Jesus' response. Maybe you just need to come back to the central truth of the gospel. And maybe you just need to jump in to a community of people who will get you up off your couch. And maybe you just need to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into our time of take two. Father, thank you that we can, with confidence and assurance, look to the death of Jesus for the completeness of forgiveness, um, for a new chance at a new life. Lord, thank you that it is as simple as trusting you day by day. I pray that we would learn to be a people clings on to this truth so that increasingly we may, with a true and sincere heart, say it is well, it is well with my soul. In Jesus' name, amen.